Hello. Hey, John. How are you? Oh, hello, Dan Benjamin. How are you? I'm just great. Just great. Good, good, good. Hey, this show's off to a zippy start. Yeah. Ha-ha! Woo! Woo! What's in store today? Who knows? Let's uh, let's sit back and find out. <laughs> let's spin the big wheel. Yeah. And find out what's on the docket. What have you What have you been doing? Well, you know, it's beautiful here right now. This is one of those um, those spring weeks where everybody in Seattle. It happens every year. Everyone here uh, rejoices. Spring is here. It's seventy degrees outside. We've uh, we had like a record high the other day, but the sun has a very nice quality to it, and um, you know it's not low in the sky, but it's kind of like I don't know. It feels very springy. The the plants are all blooming. Nice. It's great. And then uh, what happens is you you uh, at least in years past, what happens is you you think that you are that it's over that the winter's over you you've had a reprieve and now it's going to be like this and then the rain starts the real rain mm. is there, there like two, is there a rainy season there or there is it two. just all the time there's rain there are two rainy seasons and the first rainy season is at the start of winter in november when it just it's like oh how was your fall yeah and there's still some nice leaves on the trees and stuff. And then usually there's one big windstorm. And you're like, whoa, hey. Because, you know, in the summer, there's no weather really mm-hmm. here. It's just like sun, sometimes some clouds. But no, nothing ever happens. There's no thunderstorms. There's no evening rain. And then in November, you just get this like this windstorm that, uh, that just uproots trees. How long does it last? Like a, like a, is it like a day or all week long or something? No, it's a day. It's a, it's a day where it just, where it comes out of nowhere. Well, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes out of the Pacific ocean. Can't they but close it, that down or block it off or something? So you don't get disturbed in that way. There are places here in the Northwest where you are protected by the mountains in what we call a rain shadow, rain shadow, the rain shadow, the the, uh, the San Juan Islands, which are a beautiful set of islands north of Seattle, very close to Canada. In fact, during the early days of the territory, uh, Washington and Canada kind of battled over who would own these islands. They're that far north. But they're behind the, the uh, Olympic Mountains. And the Olympic Mountains are far, far, far away from these islands. But the islands are situated in an area where when the prevailing weather kind of comes from the southwest, mm-hmm. and these and the Olympic Mountains are very big, and the mountains just capture it all. They just get all the rain. They that that side of the Olympic Mountains are the only rainforest in the contiguous, well, in in North America, I think the only like bona fide rainforest, uh, and the. The result of that is that the San Juans are in sun a surprising number of the days of the year. Uh, and they're beautiful there. And if you look at a list of the celebrities that have homes on Vashon Island, it, or on uh, in the San Juan Islands, rather, uh, it will astonish you. Because within the super rich, it, 
the San Juans, clearly the word is out that the San Juans are the secret mm. uh, place in America to get a vacation home, to buy your own private island, to prepare your apocalypse bunker. <laughs> uh, because it's sunny there all the time. Now, if you're not a super rich person and you live up there, you can still be a normal and live on the San Juan Islands there. It's just like going back in time 50 years. Little towns with like a drugstore and a bunch of flags flying on 4th of July. Here, where I live, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a notch in the Olympic Mountains right around the town of Aberdeen that brings all this crazy weather in. It gets through. It gets through this little river notch. It goes, it beats the shit out of Olympia. <laughs> and then it kind of hooks. It just sort of hooks up. And I catch I catch the edge of it. Uh, people to the south of me get it worse. But the it's 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 crazy. I live what, six miles from downtown. Mm-hmm. And my mom lives right in town and she and I will have different weather all the time. Just like, what's going on at your house? Oh, it's pouring down rain. How about you? Oh, it's sunny as can be. And, um, so it's, it's very strange and, uh, kind of swirling unusual weather here. But we get that rain, we get that, that punishing windstorm in November and then it rains for a month. And that's the one that just destroys everybody. It just it just kills your soul because all of a sudden it's dark and then it's really dark. It's just like you're wet. You can't not – everything's wet. You can't not be wet. The inside of your car is wet. It's just mm, rain. I don't, like, so I don't like any of that. That's no, no – none of that's good. Wet, 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 wet and cold, November. And then it kind of – like in the middle of the winter, it sort of brightens up. It's like you get days where it's sunny and you get kind of like your weather just sort of bounces around. There's a period where it's overcast all the time, but it doesn't rain. Maybe it'll snow three days, you know, just sort of like <laughs> you'll get maybe a week of sun in February. That's that, that makes everybody really excited or at the end of January and you'll get some bad rain. But then you get this day in March and the cherry trees, we have a lot of cherry trees here and it's kind of the symbol of spring. There are a bunch of cherry trees on the University of Washington campus and when the cherry trees bloom, the local TV station always goes down there and does a, does a bit and uh, I, I try to always get down there to see the cherry trees on campus because it reminds me of being a young person. Sure. I take, you know, I go down there and with my oxygen tank and my walker <laughs> and remember what it was like to be in college right, right. for, for the, 16 years. Good old days. Um, <laughs> and it's beautiful. Oh, it's beautiful. Uh, that week in the spring when the cherry trees bloom and the, and all the, the daffodils and the tulips start coming up and uh, things bloom early here. It's, it's beautiful. But then April, just again with the like, just a solid month of rain, whether you like it or not, just like, mm. it's not that cold, dark November rain. In some ways, it's worse because it's like spring is here. God damn it. Stop it. Just rains and rains and rains. And then May and June come and you're like, come on. 
let's go, let's get going into the summer. And at least in the old days, it would just rain. It would just rain anyway. You're like, it's beautiful out, but it's fucking raining. Now that global warming has turned the Northwest into a, into a summer desert. (laughs) The last, no, seriously, the last couple of years, it rained like May 15th and then not a drop of precipitation until September 15th. I don't like, think it's it's called global warming. I think it's now called climate change. Ah, uh, climate change. Just That's FYI, because I know you're trying to, you know, stay up with some, that. I don't want somebody to yell at me. It's it's not called the global warming. Right. It's just called global, global warming. warming. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I feel like the um, I feel like any more. Now that our culture allows you to just invent whatever science you want and just say it's as valid as any other science, uh, I'm just going to go back to calling it global warming. I'm also going to call the new stupid building in downtown Manhattan the Freedom Tower. <laughs> I don't care what they call it. Right. That's, that's their thing. They called it the Freedom Tower for long enough that it stuck and they can call it World Trade Center 2 or whatever, but Freedom Tower forever, baby. <laughs> Also, you know, Paul <laughs> Allen opened a uh, opened his own private uh, trolley car here in downtown Seattle. Oh, no kidding! Uh, oh, several years ago, this is this is. Oh, well this done. is not news. This is this has happened before. This has happened. He okay. he built it uh, because he likes to build toys and he likes it. Seattle is his sandbox. Um, and no one thought about it, and they called it the South Lake Union trolley because it's the trolley that goes around South Lake Union or, or close to South Lake Union, takes you down there. Uh, and it wasn't until they sort of debuted it. And Paul Allen is famous for like, ta-da! He just loves like the big reveal. Ta-da! Mm-hmm. A trolley! <laughs> ta-da! An EMP! <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, a space plane! Ta-da! Yeah. And he really, God, I've met him a lot of times. And I think I've met him enough times now that if, if, we ran into each other, which is unlikely. But if we if we were introduced again, he would like a, a recognize and acknowledge that we have an ongoing relationship. Like I've been to his house. We've done a lot of events together. We've stood and talked awkwardly about things. But he he does these tadas, and then he is always surprised when the response from the community is anything less than total like euphoria. <laughs> He's like, ta-da, I built a 17-story tall crystal Stratocaster and I give it to you, <laughs> Seattle. Right. And Seattle's like, huh, what are we supposed to do with that? And he's like, ungrateful. Like he's just really. Bitter. He sounds bitter about it. No, no, no. He just really wants to do good. He uh. wants, he like, he loves Seattle. He wants to do good by Seattle. It's just that he's a billionaire and he doesn't consult anybody else. And no one around him has any authority to say like, um, Paul, have you thought about this? Like, let's think about this. Like, no, he has, no, he doesn't allow, he's just like a lot of billionaires, he's just eliminated that possibility. But that's he's the got, that's the best part of being a billionaire is like you don't have to ask for anyone else's opinion. You can just do the things you want to do. That's yeah, the right, whole but, allure of it. But he has like really questionable taste. Like 
like I would, I would go almost as far as to say mm, poor taste, like a lot of billionaires, like poor taste or just like meh taste, like bleh. like Donald Trump obviously has awful taste. Paul's taste isn't that bad, but just like, oh, this is your idea? Like, okay, sure, man. And the people around him are like, amazing, great job, Paul. So he does these things and – and Seattle is like, a, so Seattle's a snobby place. People are like judgy. And, mm-hmm. and so, and, and he, Paul's kind of a suburbanite and he rolls out these big projects like, well, we tore down all those old dingy warehouses full of bands and theater spaces. And we put in this amazing, uh, like tech campus where you have to have 17 different ID cards to open the doors. And people are like, yay, the economy. He's like, <laughs> Why is everyone so ungrateful? You know, it's like, well, you didn't really think it through, man. You could have left one theater, one little alternative theater in there to burnish your cred. Anyway, uh, Paul opened his trolley and no one thought that this, no one spent any, I mean, not even like for a second did they think what the acronym of South Lake Union Trolley would be, uh, which is. I'm, I'm letting you think. I, I've it's, just figured this out. Yeah. It's, uh, it's S-L-U-T, right? Yeah, that's right. The slut. The slut. Do you think that and, was a joke? I mean, it has to be. They no, have to know that. They have no, to know. No, they have to know that, And they do not have. They have well, to first, know it. I was going to say they don't have that kind of sense of humor, but the reality is they don't have a sense of humor. Like Microsoft, Paul Allen, Amazon, none of these places have any sense of humor at all. I don't get that. You know, I don't, th- th- and I think that comes from the top down. That's like a leadership down mm-hmm. kind of a thing because, like, I went to um, a dermatologist not that long ago, and the guy had no, and he was a younger guy too. I guess he's in his 30s, you know. He had no, it was like all business. And, like, I had the aide, you know, the like assistant guy, nurse guy. He was cracking up the whole time. He's laughing at all the little jokes I make and stuff. And the, the main guy was just, it was almost like an SNL skit where one guy just has no sense of humor. He was just completely straight the whole time. Like just no, wouldn't crack a smile. And the jokes were pretty good. And he wouldn't make, he wouldn't smile. He wouldn't react, nothing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's what you're describing now. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't. Now, understand. someone on that project had to know when they were typing up the letterhead or something. I don't think so. I think it was not until they because they rolled it out to the town like, ta-da! No, and then the city immediately because Seattle is a snobby town full of out of work creatives. The city was like, "That's amazing! Thank you so much for that. We have a train called the Slut." No, and people made T-shirts. And, and it was like really fun for 11 hours when we felt like, um, whether it was on purpose or not, it's like so chewy that you have your local little trolley is called the slut. It's just perfect. And then immediately they rescinded the name and they were like, no, 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 we never, 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 never. We're going to call it the South Lake Union Trolley. That was never it at all. We were always going to call it the whatever, you know, the Freedom Tower or whatever that's called now. I have no idea because if you refer to it at all, you call it the slut. 
and the, rea- the reality is you don't refer to it at all because it's a train that goes from one place to another place that doesn't matter. Like it doesn't connect to anything yet. And it's use it's not useful. I mean, I have taken it with my kid because we we'd be down at the museum and it's like, Hey, let's ride the train up to the nowhere and turn around. But no, they don't have a sense of humor. And I'm trying to think of a billionaire like Richard Branson. Mm. He has a sense of humor. He has too much humor, too much. Right. I mean, the easy example of the billionaire who's like, who flaunts it and goes like, woohoo, fuck it. Um, like he's got, he's got hubris. Uh, but it, but it looks so much better than the kind of, you know, the like hyper earnest tone deaf billionaire model. You know, you, you almost, you want super villains rather than just like, just like accidental villains. These guys are like, I thought I was doing the right thing and nobody appreciates it. And to Paul Allen's credit, he had a, he had a big idea 15 years ago Yeah, that he was going to, through a public-private partnership, buy up this, this sort of decaying warehouse neighborhood full of theaters, tear everything down, and turn it into a giant central park right on the lake that sort of should have been there the whole time. It was like a, it was like a, a, an incredibly grand scheme to remake the city and Seattle was developed in a way that like somebody would come up with a plan and say, Hey, why don't we have this constellation of parks that goes all around the city? And then they just wouldn't follow through on it. Like Seattle's follow through is so bad and has been for 150 years. Just bad follow through. Like, Hey, this is a great plan. Yeah, but it sure is going to cost a little bit of money. Why don't we just turn that land over to developers? And there is a, there's a place called Seward Park, which is a giant, uh, island, effectively an island. It was an island and then they lowered the water in the lake 20 feet and it became an isthmus, but it, (laughs) it feels like an island. Right. Sure. Uh, and it's covered with old growth trees and they, and somebody wanted to buy it and turn it into a neighborhood a hundred years ago and, and the city was able to preserve it. It's a giant in city park. There's a, there are a couple of big parks, but anyway, Paul Allen was like, look, I'll, I've got all this money. I'm a young guy. Let's get everybody on board. We'll tear all these old one story warehouses down. We'll build a giant sweeping park. I mean, it would have been enormous. And at the time in the city, there was a lot of suspicion about the motives of billionaires, kind of like there is now. Right. A lot of suspicion about the motives of billionaires. And the consensus was, oh, sure, Paul Allen builds this giant park. Sure, that's nice. But he's going to own all the land around the park, and he's going to make billions and billions of more dollars building big, expensive condos all around the park, and we shouldn't let him do that. And so there was this like a ground level movement, you know, like a, like there was a lot of suspicion in general, but then there was this sort of grassroots, like, no, we've got to stop him. 
And Paul, and, and another, the other thing was that Paul, Paul put together on his side of the, of the program, this rogues gallery of all the same downtown dickweeds that are in every city, the rotary club guys and the country club guys and the chamber of commerce guys and the tourism committee guys and all the ones that you like since I've been King Neptune and even before when I was running for office and frankly my whole fucking life. Cause my dad was one of these guys. But now that I've now at the last few years, I've spent a lot of time with them as a grown up, And it's just, they're the people that go have lunch at the Sheraton. You know what I mean? <laughs> Tell me more about these people. Well, you know, if you go to any of those downtown hotels, the Hilton, the Sheraton, the, the, Whatever the, not the, I'm not talking about the W, I'm not talking about the boutique hotels. I'm talking about the big, big hotels, the Clarion hotels and the, the Four Seasons and these type of places. Well, there's always a couple of floors at least that are just enormous banquet halls Hmm. and they have the capacity to gear up a catering squad in these places where they can suddenly serve prime rib to 1500 people. And I don't know if you, I don't know if you've ever worked in that side of the business, but to get, to take an empty room, fill it with tables and chairs and tablecloths and forks and spoons and knives, and then bring out 1500 prime ribs with all of the wait staff necessary to refill all those water glasses and bring drinks to people and then, and there's also a stage where some, where a whole group of people are giving speeches and then clear it all out. I mean, it's like it, the U S army couldn't do it. It's an, it's a, it's a major undertaking. And every one of these hotels does it every single fucking day of the week. And these events are what power the political and business community of any city. And they're happening all the time, and you're not aware of them. Like, uh, your local senator will come to town, and they will be giving a speech on behalf of a um, a nonprofit that is doing work to bring music education into the schools. And the senator will be there, and the mayor will be there, and the local and the chamber of commerce and the city council and, and all the same people, the, the tourism people, the rotary club, they'll all be there. Plus all of the people that have a vested interest in the program, a bunch of teachers who look like they've never been downtown before. Uh-huh. <laughs> there will be a, there'll be a dais and a podium and one after another, these elected officials and local luminaries and people in the, community will get up and give brief speeches, which are, which they hope are humorous. Uh, and then there will be a period where they give earnest speeches about the work they're doing. And they'll probably trot a kid up there and the kid will say, I learned to play the clarinet. Thank you, Mm -hmm. Senator. And there'll be a slideshow that's moving, you know, like a, like it's emotionally moving or meant to be. And then they'll bring the lights up and they'll say, 
you know, everybody, and then the prime rib is sort of there already. <laughs> and then everybody right. eats. And then there's some kind of pass the hat. Like, hey, there's envelopes on the table. You know, give what you can. And my God, Dan, there's one happening right now. Right, right, I mean, right this very moment. There's one happening in Austin where you live, and there's one happening in Seattle where I live, and there might be five happening. And this is, you know, and it's kind of overlaps with, uh, because there's a season for them too, right? The Seattle Tourism Board gears up for summer and the Pike Place Market and the, and in Austin, I'm sure it's the Lady Bird Johnson Lake Society. Something like that, right? And, and they're, you know, and they gear up for things and then they, you know, and then at the end they kind of have a big celebratory dinner to, and, and, and part of being a part of holding public office is that you attend all these things. Like your calendar is constantly full every single day at lunch. You're on your way to one of these. And, and if you're important, like the mayor, you kind of show up right as the event is starting, I've watched it and I'm, and I'm, I'm just astonished by the, by the choreography, right? Like everybody's standing around milling around. I've been there for 25 minutes. Cause I'm just like, well, I got nowhere else to go. And I'm standing like kind of standing against the wall or talking to some group of people I know. And then the mayor walks in and immediately the lights go down and the Senator too. I mean, the Senator just sort of comes in and it begins. Right. And that's a credit to their staff, right? They're, they're, their time is so managed that they're just like the car pulls up, they walk out the door, up the stairs, into the event. The event starts, they sit there, they get up, give their presentation, whatever it's going to be. And then in a lot of cases, they just get down off the stage and keep moving and out the door. They don't stay for the end. Right. Because they've got another thing to go to. And this is the way that the, that cities, that the people that own and run the big operations in a city. This is how they talk to each other and how they socialize with each other. And it always has the, it always has the, uh, imprimatur of civic virtue. There, uh, these events are always, uh, like premised on helping. They're trying to raise money or they're trying to, put together a coalition or they're trying to, they've, they've got a plan and they just need everybody behind it. And there's, they're always sending students overseas. They are planting trees and flower gardens and, and it's all <clears throat> kind of that scale, right? They, they, they very seldom get together because somebody had a radical idea like let's build parks on top of the freeways. <laughs> You know, people would be like, wait a minute. <laughs> right. Or in a lot of cases, like ideas you would think they would embrace, like like during this same period, Dan Savage of uh, Sex Column fame was really pushing the idea that we needed to build a citywide monorail. We have a little monorail from the 1960s that we that's kind of like a little, again, like a little toy. It might as well be called the slut. But Dan Savage wanted to build a monorail all around the city. And it was the type of thing you would think this crowd would get behind. 
But for whatever reason, this crowd didn't like it and they fought it. And it never, and the, the people of Seattle voted three times to build the monorail, but never quite got the legislation right. They didn't allocate enough money. They allocated money to do a feasibility study, but they didn't allocate money to actually start building it. And so when the feasibility study money ran out, they voted for it again, like big referendums. Uh, Three separate times the citizens of Seattle voted against using public money to build a downtown stadium for uh, the football team. Mm -hmm. But this establishment group downtown has the ability to rally together and effectively ignore what people are saying to them. Like they did, the people did not want the stadiums, but this downtown crowd would kind of get together and be like, well, the stadium would be really good for the city. It's going to bring in all that tax money. All those people are going to come to town and they're all going to buy Chinese food when they leave. And they're (laughs) going to, they're going to buy sleepless in Seattle night shirts. Like, it's good for the town. It looks good. People will, when they think of Seattle, they'll think that we're a big deal if we have a football team. And if we don't have a football team, they're going to know we're not a big deal. And so even though we voted three times not to pay for the stadium, somehow we built a stadium and the public paid for it. It was a, they came up with a deal. They came up with a workaround and eventually, you know, you get tired of voting for things. And eventually if they wear you down long enough, people are just like, okay, fucking whatever. Mm-hmm. And with the monorail, three times we voted for it, three times it went through and the, you know, the public's not thinking, oh, this is money for a feasibility study to see if we can afford a second feasibility study. The public's like, we voted for the monorail. Let's build it. We voted three times and it, and still the downtown crowd was like, well, I don't know. It's kind of just seems like a gimmick. I don't know why they didn't like it. Frankly, I thought it was a great idea, but then I was 25. I love monorails also. Yeah. Uh, We would like to take a break to thank our sponsor. It's masterclass. Imagine learning cooking from Gordon Ramsay photography from Annie Leibovitz or basketball from Steph Curry. Well, now you can. Like these actual people are teaching on Masterclass. Uh, Masterclass produces online classes that are taught by the best in the world. Each class is shot with cinematic production quality. They offer on demand lessons loaded with exclusive content that you'll find only on Masterclass. You can choose from classes taught by over 30 masters including cooking techniques from Chef Thomas Keller, screenwriting from Aaron Sorkin, filmmaking from Martin Scorsese, and much more. And it doesn't matter if you're pursuing your passion, developing your career, or like me, just looking to learn something new from somebody who's really cool. Masterclass gives you access to their best in the craft so that you can master your own thing. This is really, really cool. When we first got this sponsor, I was like, what is this? This seems like, how did they get these amazing people? And I sat down and started watching these things. And the one that I started off with was, uh, of course, 
you know, who doesn't want to learn from Martin Scorsese? And then I moved on to, uh, to Dead Mouse. And just because I'm so into, like, what is his creative process of making music? I'm never going to sit down and make this kind of music. And I'm probably not going to direct a gangster film. But, like, that didn't stop me because these things are fascinating. But there are great techniques that you can learn, especially I feel like cooking is a big one uh, because everybody can cook at home. You might not be able to go and make a, a you know, a movie today, but there are people who can. Uh, but what I can do is I can go home and get some food and try these things that I learned in the kitchen. Uh, but it's fascinating. And these are super great quality videos that are just a joy to watch. And if you're interested in more than one class, you can get this all access pass, which is what I did with this. You can unlock every class from over 30 masters all for the price of two. And so Roadwork listeners can get the all-access pass by going to masterclass.com slash roadwork. You want to say it again, masterclass.com slash roadwork, and you will learn from the best in the world. So go check it out, masterclass.com slash roadwork. They voted again. They, we voted for it, and, and, and somehow it never got built. And, and what happened was there was a fourth vote. And finally, on the fourth vote, people were bored and they were just like, okay, if it takes this much effort, then never mind. Anyway, all by describing at this, during this period, Paul Allen had this plan. I'm going to tear down the entire center of the city and build a giant park. And his feeling about it, his attitude about it was, I'm going to do this for you. Seattle. Mm. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to tear down all these old theater spaces and garbage car repair shops. And I'm going to build this park for you. And this downtown crowd was so in it. They were so in it. And all the, you know, all the ladies with like sort of helmet hair (laughs) and all the guys with, with, um, that are wearing class rings from the Naval Academy and all of the, you know, the slick suits and the people that give money to things, they were all lined up behind it because it was exactly the kind of thing they love. It's going to make Seattle a world-class city. It's finally going to dispel the notion that we're just a big, angry Portland. (laughs) And it's going to make people realize that we're just a small Tokyo. You know, that's what Seattle wants. (laughs) To be a small Tokyo. Yeah, Seattle wants to be respected by the by the Pacific Rim community and seen as like, you know, like a like 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 we're a competitor with San Francisco and Vancouver, and there are all these little things that chip away at it all the time. Like you know, Portland's like, oh well, we're just going to let people sell food out of Volkswagen buses, and every and every tourist magazine in the country is like, Portland's amazing. You can get like falafel, and Seattle goes. Damn it, Portland! Because in Seattle, it was illegal to have food trucks, and so Seattle. Wait, wait, it, it was illegal to have a food truck. Yeah, you couldn't have food trucks here because because some you know combination of like health inspectors and fire department people and just all you know just all the Seattle like nanny statism had decided thirty years ago that food trucks weren't safe. And all of a sudden, Portland's got food trucks. I mean, every every single unoccupied corner has got 40 food trucks on it. And 
And people point to that as like, Portland's cool. And so Seattle begrudgingly and like reluctantly, not because they didn't want food trucks, because Seattle does, because food trucks are great. Seattle was angry because they have to keep up with Portland, which is so insulting. Seattle's always like, come on, Tokyo, let's go, let's go. And then Portland's like, oh, we got food trucks. Seattle's like, oh, fuck. All right, we have food trucks too. And then now we have food trucks and the and it's great. Go around, get your food at a food truck. But but, but the city itself feels like uh, diminished, right? And then we built this big port and we were like, we're the second biggest port on the third biggest port on the West Coast or the second biggest for a while after Long Beach, which is the biggest port in the universe. Or I guess that's Rotterdam, but, and then Tacoma, our little brother to the South was like, well, we got a great big port here too. And we'll charge you less to use it. And all the shipping companies were like, Hey, you know, if we just keep the boat going for another like five hours, we'll be in Tacoma and we don't have to pay all those trucks to drive the shit to Tacoma. And all of a sudden the port of Tacoma was, was big, like Seriously, taking a lot of business away from Seattle. Like it became as big as the port of Seattle or close to it. Mm. And Seattle's like, fuck, come on. (laughs) We had the big port. We're the big, we're the big deal. Seattle is the big deal. Why are you doing this to us, Tacoma? And Tacoma's like, ha ha. Ha ha. And so, (laughs) you know, Seattle's always getting these little, like what they consider just little economic mosquito bites and cultural you know, thorns in our toe from these local cities that are just, that are, they're not really strivers like we are. They're just, they see an opportunity and they just do it. And we're striving. We want to build the tallest buildings and we want to be the big wheel. So that whole crowd was like, let's tear down the city and build this beautiful park. And the grassroots side sort of spearheaded by Dan Savage said, this is our chance for some get back on these people. We're not going to let them turn our gritty theater district full of clubs and speakeasies and, you know, places where people are coming out on an all black stage dressed all in black <laughs> And talking about their childhood <laughs> abuse. Right. Um, we're going to protect that because that's the character of real Seattle. And we're going to fight this big plan. The plan was called the Seattle Commons. And the idea was that Paul was going to buy up all these properties, these individual little properties. They weren't going to eminent domain it. They were actually going to go in and but he was going to buy all this little and he was doing it. While this was happening, you could see they would publish maps and they're like, Paul Allen now owns 40 different plots, 40 different little warehouses down in this area. And he's, he's buying more all the time and he was going to give it to the city. He was so proud of himself. He would sit there and if he had suspenders, he would have his thumbs hooked in him. Just like, how do you like me now? Like a, like just old, like, um, foghorn leghorn style. Yeah. 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 I'm going to give y'all a whole town, a whole big park (laughs) called the commons. (laughs) 
It's called the Commons because that sounds like a housing development <laughs> from the 1990s, which is what this basically is going to be. Like the Commons. Like fuck you. Nobody calls it. Nobody's going to call it that. What 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 would it be called? The Park, probably. Yeah. Um. There, the 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 area of First Avenue in Seattle was like First Avenues in most towns was uh, a skid row mm. in Seattle for decades. Wait, so wait a minute, that it's that way in most towns. First Avenue is a skid row. Maybe not now that every town in America is trying to rehabilitate its First Avenue, but in all the towns of the West that I've known, First Avenue is the street that's closest to the waterfront. Mm -hmm. And so first Avenue is the street that is inundated with sailors, stevedores, rats, uh, you know, whores from, from seaports around the world. Like it's just, a it, uh, like first avenues used to be peep shows and raunchy bars. And it was just like, it was the bad side. It's all, it was always first Avenue mm -hmm. in, in Anchorage. Actually it was fourth Avenue because first through third avenues slid down the side of the hill during the 64 earthquake. So fourth Avenue was like the, was like the area where all the bars were, but fourth Avenue in Anchorage was one solid bar <laughs> for four miles. And they weren't big bars. They were just like store individual storefront bars, one after another it was like the Wild West down there. And Seattle was was very similar. But during this period of urban renewal where Seattle was becoming an economic powerhouse because of the software and, and um, they were cleaning up downtown, they <clears throat> ran all those bars out of there. They built an muse art museum down there. They, you know, they cleaned it up. And turned all those bars into North Face stores and and um, and like little boutiques. They finally closed the lesbian-owned strip strip club that was the last vestige of it just a few years ago. But they decided they wanted to rebrand First Avenue somehow. Mm -hmm. They were going to rebrand. They needed to call it something else because you know the term Skid Row comes from Seattle. I had no idea. Yeah, there was a there. There's a street called Yesler. I would have guessed like that's a New York thing. No, no, it comes from Seattle because there was a uh, Henry Yesler built a sawmill in the very earliest days of the town, a sawmill right on the water here, and there was a big hill uh, right above the sawmill, and they were lumbering all the forests up on the top of the hill, and then they would skid the logs down on like a mud trench okay. just skid them down to the lawmill to the sawmill and as the town grew the area around the sawmill was like the kind of raunchiest part of town and it just little by little start just was called skid row because that's how things get named they don't get named by a committee of of rotary clubbers who are like let's call it the commons you know they get named by like oh it's skid row it's called the slut it's the, it's the freedom tower. <laughs> uh, so we were cleaning up the cleaning up downtown, and it was just it was always called downtown. And it's like Pioneer Square is over here. You got Pike Place Market up here. What is that area between them? It's just the it's just First Avenue. That's what you call it. It's First Avenue. 
But all of a sudden, these signs started going up on phone poles in that area that said, West Edge. West Edge. And you'd walk around and look up and be like, West Edge. They look, they were, they didn't really look. doesn't sound like a, I mean, I don't have a problem with West, West Edge. The commons, I don't, I agree. I don't, I don't think that's a good, what's wrong with West Edge? Well, what's wrong with it? Sounds kind of cool. It sounds like up and coming and like, you know, good restaurants would be there. And that's what the signs looked like too. I mean, they were, they were officially mounted to poles. They didn't look like, they didn't look like a, a, um, like a guerrilla art project. They looked like something official, but they were, they were done in this sort of almost like Jetsons sort of kidney shaped graphic that seemed like, well, it was immediately dated. It immediately felt like something from 1987, even though it was 1997. Uh, but it was like the West edge that is not a thing that organically came from the people, mm-hmm. right? No, nobody said it was a, a marketing group sort of sat down and, and came up with this. What do we call it. this? We're going to rebrand this. What do we call it? The West edge. I like it. But the problem with a, a neighborhood in your city, like if you're redevelop, if you're, if you're out in the suburbs and you're building a, uh, you're building a housing development, you can call it Bryn Mawr or you can call it shady groves <laughs> or you can call it whatever you want because you're what was building the name it. of the, the neighborhood in, uh, in, in, in uh, back to the future. Well, I was thinking poltergeist. Oh, right. Uh, uh, I don't know. It was a name. I got to Oh, it's going to bug me. I'll have to look it up. I don't want to look it up. I want to just know. Yeah. It's like, I, I don't know either. I'll, 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 It'll come shady farm. Yeah. Or, something like that. Um, but if you're talking about a downtown, like they did this in New York, not very long ago, hell's kitchen <clears throat> was called hell's kitchen because it was in the, it was in midtown and it was over on the, um, it was over on the West side and it was just this kind of like <clears throat> sun baked, unfriendly, corner of the world that was again full of stevedores and prostitutes and was uh it just considered kind of a like a dangerous unsavory part of the town and the name hell's kitchen was very organic to it mm-hmm. um but as the city redeveloped the this same group of people who are in new york in spades decided that Hell's Kitchen sounded, it was unpalatable if you were trying to market new apartments there. And they started calling Cuesta it... Verde. Is that what it was called? <laughs> That's Cuesta what it Verde? was called. <laughs> it took me that long to, to listen to you and also Google it. <laughs> Cuesta that, Verde. Uh, that, you couldn't call something... Um, Cuesta Verde up na- uh, up in Seattle. No, that's that wouldn't work. That's a it's California very, only. It's very Orange County. Yeah. But now <laughs> Hell's Kitchen is called Clinton. It's the Clinton neighborhood. Oh, really? Clinton. Uh-huh. 
And, <clears throat> you know, it's like <laughs> it's trying to compete with Soho and uh, the West Village and all these kind of groovy, um, you know, like up and coming neighborhoods where where uh, like real estate is expensive. And so, you know, Hell's Kitchen was the nickname for it all the way back to the mid 19th century, like back, back, back when it was a Irish slum. And I don't, Clinton, I, I don't think, uh, it doesn't seem advi- well, ad- well advised. Well, it just feels artificial. Yeah. It just feels like um, we're like the people at the Sheraton are going to try and <laughs> and call it Clinton now right, and right. see if it sticks. And it it sticks if enough people, you know, if enough people buy into it. In Seattle, no one bought into the West Edge. I've never heard it used other than completely ironically. And after a while, I think the city got bored trying to th- shove it down people's throats. So those little signs are still up on phone poles. And maybe if you check into a hotel down there, the concierge pulls out a map and says, okay, we're in the West Edge now. But what you want to do is head up toward the market and then turn right. You'll see the Sheraton there. Like, I I don't know if people use it, but, but nobody uses it in the world, in the real world. Uh, Anyway, so Paul Allen's, Paul Allen's commons comes up for a vote. And I was in my mid twenties at this point and was someone who was down in that neighborhood in those little theater spaces all the time. It was, it was one of the reasons that Seattle was such a creative place then because there was junky real estate that was really cheap. If you wanted to start an alternative theater troupe, you could go find a space and paint it black and build a little stage and some bleachers and put on shows that cost $5 and you could write plays and act in them and do one woman shows and like, and it was happening everywhere. And there wasn't a creative distinction at the time made between people that were doing alternative theater and people that were doing alternative music and people that were doing alternative visual arts. We all just felt like an arts community and we collaborated with each other and there was just a lot of, we all had sex with each other. It was a, it was a (laughs) single, it felt like a single artistic community. And you know, there was a gay underground then it, it wasn't a time yet when, um, like the gay community had experienced this, uh, diaspora where they, you know, like if you're, if you're gay in Seattle now, it's like being a Seattleite, like it's presumed that you're gay. Uh, at the time there were, yeah, there was a concentrated gay neighborhood and theater was happening intermingled with like gay rights and um, it felt like a time of like real like struggle, but it was all happening 
with a with a feeling that it was that it had to be underground because if it got too it, well because it just wasn't palatable to the larger world and the idea that Paul Allen was going to come into this like secret warren and bulldoze it and build a big park and call it the commons and the people with helmet hair you're downtown, offended you're very offended like like it's the at the time felt like precisely the kind of billionaire tone deaf intervention in what makes a city great <laughs> that we all talk about now but the, but Seattle was kind of um like one of the petri dishes of this new billionaire model of helping and so i was on just politically and socially was on the anti-commons team because it felt like my relationship to the downtown crowd, the Sheraton lunchtime crowd was antagonistic. Then fuck those people. Seattle belongs to us. Um, you know, I go to those lunches now and I have very, I'm, I feel very conflicted in them. It was one of the things that made running for office so surreal because I was finally at those events as a player, right? No longer either there shadowing my dad or there because I was dating one of the caterers or there because I snuck in or because I was the kid that had learned to play the clarinet. Like I was there because I was going from table to table, shaking hands and trying to get your vote. Felt very weird. Now I'm, now I'm King Neptune, right? So I go right. to those events and I can be like, fuck you, I'm King Neptune. And it's the perfect balance. Anyway, we fought the commons. We fought it through a couple of votes. And Paul Allen and the downtown crowd were incredulous that the city would not accept this largesse. This was like a free park. He was doing this for us. Right, like it's a gift. You Don't you understand? An incredible gift that will make Seattle the new Tokyo. And all you grungy grungers want to do is sit down there in your mossy little shitholes and make your weird gay theater? They, were, they were just couldn't even believe it. And we were smug and snobs. And we're like, that's right, man. And we got, we lit into, or we, we connected with the natural NIMBY mentality here. Like people in Seattle are timid, politic, politically timid and very NIMBY, you know, like, well, whatever, like just keep it out of my neighborhood is the general attitude here. I support programs for the homeless, but just don't build them around me. It's like, well, where should we build them? Well, build them over there. Well, there's already too many of them over there. We need to spread them around. Well, then I'm against it. Well, you can't be against it. You're a liberal. Oh, well, I mean, I'm not against it. I just feel like those people should, wait a minute, those people? Like this conversation happens constantly in Seattle and always has. I support it, but just not around me. <laughs> and we tapped into them. 
because you can't, you can't win any election around here without them. And in a lot of cases, the downtown crowd really knows it. And they're like, we're going to build a football stadium. It's way down here in this area where none of you live and it's going to make everything better. And the NIMBYs are like, hmm, sounds good. It's not around me. Great. But as soon as you say, hey, we're going to build uh, mass transit and around all the mass transit stops, we want to raise the height limits on buildings so that we can have more apartments there because those people will ride transit and they won't need cars. So we're going to build these little urban centers around all the transit stops. But it requires a zoning change. And all the people, you, you wouldn't believe it. It's like you could, you, could, you could predict it from a mile away. All the people within about a mile radius around that uh, little urban like core protested. They're like, wait, wait a minute. No. You know, you're ruining the character of the neighborhood. It's like, no, we're not. We're just building a couple of buildings around this transit stop. Oh, but then it's going to be, people are going to come from far away and they're going to park here. Well, uh, no, probably not. We're, do you get the idea? And they're like, sure, but just do that other places. Well, we tapped into them by saying they're going to ruin the city with this. They're going to ruin it. And we got enough of the NIMBYs to sympathetically vote with the idea that it was, that the city was being ruined and we voted down the commons and it felt like a real stick in the eye for the fat cats, <laughs> the big time developers <laughs> and the helmet hairs and the billionaires. We really stuck it to them. Fuck you billionaires fat cats, downtown peeps. Like we're the, we're the scene, man. And we celebrated. It was a, it was a, uh, it was a victory. And there's a part of me that is always like city oriented and civic oriented that mourned a little bit that, I didn't get to have my cake and eat it too, which was I didn't get to protest the thing and then see the thing built anyway, which is a lot of the, that's a lot of the fun of being in the resistance is that you get to say, fuck that big park. And then the downtown crowd wins and they build the big park and then you get to use the big park. You get to go down there and have picnics and stuff. And gradually you're like, well, it wasn't that bad. Like it's, you, you see it all the time. Uh, you see it politically all the time on the left and the right where people vote against their own interests because they, they want the schadenfreude and, but they expect to lose. And that was what was so surprising about the election of Donald Trump. Nobody expected him to win. Right. All the people that voted for him were like, ha ha, I'm going to show them. I'm going to show the liberals. I'm going to vote for Donald Trump and they're going to feel bad. But then Hillary Clinton's going to be the president because she, like, knows how to uh, knows like where the light switches are. And then Trump won, and he was like, "What?" I mean, even he didn't want to win. So we won, and I felt a little tinge of like, "Huh, well, that big park that would have been kind of interesting to see." But anyway, we saved our scene, 
And what we didn't realize was two things. One, the scene was changing as scenes always do. It, we, we weren't always going to be 25 and it wasn't always going to be theater, theater, theater. Things were, something else was going to come along. And generally Seattle culture goes on this, goes on this like oscillating wave of what's popular right now, heroin or cocaine. <laughs> and those are the and, two options always. Yeah. And when heroin is popular, uh, the culture that's popular is like real downer music and dark theater and like avant-garde kind of angry, sad, mostly sad more than angry, but w- sadness with a, with a, a heavy dollop of anger. And then cocaine becomes popular and all of a sudden nobody wants that anymore. Everybody wants to dance, dance and and sad, sad sack guitar music goes out and it's just like, and it becomes like a big dancing scene and like flamboyant art. And, and it's sort of big cocaine, happy face town for a while. And then that kind of gets boring and, and downers come back in and then it's all downer music again. And I've seen it go through this like four times in the last 20 years. So the downer theater scene wasn't always going to stay, stay around. But the other thing we didn't factor in, and I'm sure there are listeners who are way ahead of me in this story, is that Paul Allen bought all that property. Mm. Like he was going to give it to the city, but when we told him no thanks, he didn't stop owning it. It didn't go back to, being owned by a bunch of old, old families that don't live in Seattle anymore. It went to Paul Allen and Paul Allen was angry. He was bitter. Right. He he felt like we had taken his beautiful dream uh, of building his commons. And he presumed one day there would be a giant statue of him (laughs) standing. Right. Like Rocky at the art museum. Yeah, like carved out of marble, standing with one hand on a globe and the other hand holding a scepter. And at the bottom it would say, Paul Allen, civic leader, benefactor, man of the world, keeper of the peace. Um, That's all gone now. And all he's left with is a bunch of little buildings, just little theaters. And so he commenced to tear down all those buildings anyway, one by one evict all those little theater companies and one by one tear them all down and in their place build five-story tall like tech campus style buildings with no architectural imagination or barely any. Mm Mm-hmm. Most of them with no public spaces, no access to the buildings themselves. You can't even go into the lobby because you need a key card. Um, mo- all of them with parking garages underneath it. And he just began redeveloping that neighborhood in the style of a suburban uh, tech campus. Might as well have built one infinite loop, but all cramped together in what had formerly been an industrial neighborhood. And so what 
the effect was, was over the course of 15 years, not only did we lose the neighborhood anyway, but what we got in its place was like this soul crushing sort of uh, non-place. Right. I mean, it's a neighborhood that is completely new. Very, very, very few buildings from the old days even are standing. So it's like he got a giant piece of the center of our city uh-huh. and just built what he thought was cool, which was a bunch of, you know, how do you, how, what would, rent. If, if he had been more inclusive with the people of Seattle, what do you think would have been built there? Would it have been the same? Would it not have been torn down? Would it just been redone? Like, what do you imagine it would have been? Well, here's the, here's where I part ways with, um, with a lot of Seattle. My, my uncle was mayor of Anchorage in the mid seventies and he took me aside when I was a teenager and said, listen, here's something you need to know about government. Government is all about land use policy and zoning. Nobody cares about anything else. Because everything is about land. If you're building a city, there are people that own the land and they want to build on it. And if you're, if you're talking about America and the American dream, everybody wants to own their own home. Everybody wants to own some land, mm-hmm. a little piece of it. That's yeah. the sign that you've arrived. And once you own that little piece of land, you want to do what, with it what you want to do. You definitely do not want to be told what you can and cannot do once you've bought your piece of land. Right. It's the foundation of uh, capitalism, of, of like an economy of any kind. Who owns the land? We don't have a communal ownership of most of the land in a city. And so anything you want to do any big plan you have, any big project requires that you have the zoning to allow it and have the, um, have the right of way and have people behind it so that they're not fighting. Every little property owner isn't standing there fighting the plan. Well, after Paul Allen kind of, he didn't rook us. He just, we just rooked ourselves. We weren't paying attention. Like, wait a minute. He still owns all this stuff. He's not just going to leave it. He's not going to sell it back to us. And he has friends downtown. He's going to get the zoning made whatever he wants. We've got to stop him. Mm -hmm. And so it became a zoning issue. And the city council ever mindful of the NIMBYs and of the, you know, the agitating, like, um, the agitating civic class, which are middle-class people who are politically active said, well, he's going to want to build these 80 story tall buildings and we can't let him, we have to restrict the zoning in that neighborhood. We have to keep him from, um, from just doing whatever he wants. And so, and the reason was, well, we wanted to keep the neighborhood uh, livable. Mm -hmm. 
and apparently big tall buildings are unlivable, but five story tall buildings are livable. And the logic is as, uh, like all the way to just that the sunlight gets in. If you have tall buildings then the sun doesn't, doesn't touch the street. But if you have short buildings, then you, then the sun gets in. Well, if you're down on the sidewalk behind a five story building, you get exactly as much sun as you get behind a 50 story building. But that's some of the logic, right? And the tall buildings blocked the view of some NIMBYs up on Capitol Hill. And the NIMBYs are like, yeah, it blocks the view. But also Seattle loves social engineering. So what they said was, if we'll let you have an exemption to the zoning, you can build a tall building here, but a certain number of the, a certain amount of the square footage has to be given to uh, housing for the poor or uh, uh, alternative theater spaces or, you know, we're going to put conditions on how you use the property in order that you get these exemptions. And I think we assumed that he would say, okay, you've got me over a barrel. You've got your, you've got my arm behind my back. I want to build a 70 story tall building. So I'll give 25% of it over to housing for the homeless. And then the Seattle city council and the downtown agitator crowd could say victory. We did it again. We stuck it to him and we, you know, and we accomplished all of our social goals by extorting him. But what he did was he was like, oh, well, fine. Then I'll just build five-story tall buildings. doesn't matter to me. Like, it's way more difficult to make a 50-story building. I don't need to. I'm rich. <laughs> and I'll make a shit ton of money off of these five-story buildings. Like, it became just a – did it pencil out for them? <clears throat> we would like to thank our second sponsor, Casper. Casper is a sleep brand. It continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience, and they're doing it one night at a time. And the reason I say they're, they, you know, we used to say Casper makes these great mattresses. Well, they still make great mattresses, but they do more than just mattresses. First of all, the mattresses they make are awesome. I love mine. They combine multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with just the right amount of sink and bounce. They're breathable design, so you sleep cool. It helps regulate your body temperature through the night. They're designed, developed, and assembled right here in the U.S. And uh, they're doing great. They've got over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars across their site, Amazon, and Google. And uh, you could call them the Internet's uh, favorite mattress. I, w I call them that. They have three models, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential. But like I was saying, they're not just a mattress company. They've got more because their goal isn't to make the best mattress. Their goal is to give you the best night's sleep. And so what else do you need to do that? Guess what? You, you also might need what? Pillows? Sure. They do that. You might need some bedding. Guess what? They got the bedding. And of course, they got the mattresses. And the mattresses ship in this little box. That you're like, how is a mattress in there? You open it up. Expands. And you can sleep on the thing for 100 nights, risk-free. If you don't like it, they take it away give you full refund that's their 100 night risk-free sleep on it trial 
So here's the deal. You can get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash roadwork, casper.com slash roadwork, and you use the code roadwork, one word, at checkout. I have to say that terms and conditions apply. So, you know, there you go. I've said it. Casper.com slash roadwork and use the code roadwork to save $50 toward any mattress purchase. Thanks very much to Casper for making this show possible. Paul started a property development company called Vulcan, which right, I've heard of that. Idea, yeah, some idea of what a nerd he is. Well, it's a, you know, it's named after the the planet, not the mm. you you see that that's revealing that you're a nerd because you think of it as a Star Trek thing, mm-hmm. but it's actually you know the the is it the Roman god Vulcan is Mars? Mm. No, I think of it as, primarily as a uh, like a mining community in. Romania, of course, Carpathian of course, but Vulcan is the God of fire, the God of fire. That's the Greek counterpart is Hephaestus. That has so little to do with property development. I can't even begin to tell you. (laughs) Right. No, well, he was, he forged things, right? His, uh, the blacksmith's hammer. He's the God of fire and smithery. (sighs) Yes. Smithery. Yes. We're talking about a guy who owns a science fiction museum that literally has Spock's well, fucking uh, ears in it. May, maybe that's what it's about then. But but no, it has the association <laughs> with Vulcan, the god of fire, so that Paul Allen can like he has plausible deniability that he is a that he's an inveterate nerd. He can say, No, 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 it's the god of fire. But we know what it really is. <laughs> so so we had we put all these zoning restrictions on that area. And tied them to these social programs and projects that we wanted to accomplish. And so he'd, and the thing is that there is a place at five stories. I learned this recently within building, uh, you can go up five stories in a building made of wood. You can build wood structures up to five stories tall. And above that, they need to be made of iron. You know, the, the, they need to be steel buildings. And so it's an order of magnitude. Uh, it's just a completely different project to build a steel skyscraper than it is to build a five story building made out of, made out of two by fours. And whatever that cutoff line is, Again, it just became a thing that Vulcan ran the numbers on. And I think a lot of us who don't run the numbers that often on things, uh, who aren't looking for like what's the best return on my dollar, we don't realize that you know it costs a lot more to build a big thing. And it's a lot more difficult to run it. And in the end, do you actually make more money on it? It seems like to us that you would. But maybe you don't. Or maybe it's close enough that it's not worth the trouble. Anyway, the developers of that area, the largest of which was Paul Allen, just decided, meh. And they built this little fucking nothing. You know, these this little campus of five-story buildings. Well, at that point, I broke faith with my fellows uh, on the on the agitating left 
the, the uh, zoning left, let's call it, because I'm a natural urbanist, you know, like I like tall buildings. I think they're cool. Not just that they're cool, but I think, well, if you take the same area on the ground, the same square block, let's call it, like you have to build 10 five-story buildings to make the same square footage as one 50-story building. So what you're talking about is we're going to tear down 10 blocks of buildings and build 10 five-story buildings that are all just blah. Or we could build one 50-story building and then we'd have nine of those other blocks to do other things. And what happened in Seattle was we built these – we redeveloped this entire neighborhood – put very little housing in it and filled it with tech workers who all needed places to live. And those tech workers started looking for real estate in Seattle and they bought all the old houses that had three families living in them and kicked them out. And they bought all the old apartments and the apartment went from being a $250,000 apartment to a hundred or to a million two apartment. And they just, they changed the whole character of the center of the city. The tech workers who came with all this money and they didn't care. They didn't know, you know, they graduated from Stanford or like, I'm moving to Seattle. I could buy I'm just going to buy a place. You know, they would buy a four bedroom apartment and they would just hang posters of Lamborghinis on the wall. Because when they came home at night, all they wanted to do was play their PlayStation. Right. But they needed a place to live. Anyway, from my perspective, Seattle missed so many opportunities. Uh, I regret being against the commons. Because I think that the reasons that I was against the commons were all very provincial and small. Mm Mm-hmm. I was not thinking 20 years in the future. I did not see the reality. And I was, you know, and I voted with my peers. I was on board with the program, but I hadn't thought it through independently. But even when I ran for city council, I mean, one of my opponents was a housing activist. And he was constantly, his whole platform was talking about punishing the developers with all these restrictions on what they could do because the big time developers were the ones that were tearing down housing to, you know, to build big expensive condos. And it was like sticking it to the developers must feel really good to people because they picture these developers like getting rich on the backs of the poor. But it's so small. If we had like and they're against high rises, the 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 activists. They're against them because the developers are gonna get rich. And I think there's still a lot of fear about housing projects, like high rise housing projects, left over from Cabrini Green and the you know, the failed experiments of 
housing the poor in giant buildings Mm -hmm. that aren't maintained. And Seattle's idea was mixed use buildings. We'll build a 50 story building. There'll be expensive condos in it and there'll be middle, middle, middle condos in it. And there'll be like housing for the poor all in the same building. But, you know, you have to enforce that right. on a developer. And the developer is looking at, and, you know, I, it's not like I know a ton of developers, but I do know that that they their profit margin isn't like a thousand percent. Every one of those apartments that you say, that you tell them how much they can rent it for, they add it into their spreadsheet and they're like, well, that's, you know, you're taking the profit away. And at a, at a certain point, like I'm not building these buildings as a public service. Uh, I'm a like for-profit enterprise. Right. So if the profit isn't enough, I just won't build it or I'll build something else. I'll build a four-story building and rent it to a biotech company. How you like me now? How much affordable housing is in it? Um, I, if we had built if we had allowed the downtown area to be skyscrapers, mm-hmm. yeah, like what, what, a, are, what is the skyline of satellite besides the space needle that everybody knows? Well, the tallest building in Seattle right now is called the Columbia tower. And it's a, it's very much an eighties. It's a, it's the best of the eighties. Let's call it that. Okay. It's all black glass. It looks kind of like three pieces of roofing tar that have been chipped off and arranged artfully together. You know, it's kind of like slick, black, very tall. Um, and it's situated on the, on the steepest part of the hill in the downtown business core. It takes up a whole city block. It's a place that for a while people were in the middle of the night climbing up on the roof and jumping off with their parachutes. But then one person got caught in a wind <laughs> gust <laughs> right. and the, and their parachute like slammed them up against the building right. and then spun around and slammed them up against the building again and did it like six times on their way down. Uh, and they, they were uh, gravely hurt, maybe killed. I'm not sure. So people stopped doing that. But there are buildings downtown the, the, there's a building next to it, which is shaped like a giant green penis. <laughs> I mean, intentionally. Well, this is the question of skyscraper design. Like, They're I mean, all, if you really get technical about it, all skyscrapers look like a giant penis. I mean, it's the whole idea, right? That, that men are building skyscrapers because they're extensions of their penises. Um, that there is one, academic critique of urban design that says, well, I mean, there's obviously there's a a whole academic movement that suggests that anything long and long and round on the sides, uh, with a point is a penis. If you went to the university of Washington, there are a lot of classes you could sit in where all you would have to do is stand up and say that. And everybody would applaud. Man, you just get an A and you just back out of the class. You're done. That's right. You're like, that's right. It's a, just a big cock. Yeah. Everybody'd be like, yeah, what a trenchant <laughs> insight. But there is a building that is green. Uh, and it 
has a roof that is like a Dutch colonial, but on the top of a giant skyscraper, the roof of a Dutch colonial looks like the head of a penis. And then as you move down the, let's call it the shaft of the giant skyscraper that is green in color and has the head of a penis, it has um, on on either side of, I mean, it's flat on the sides, but then on the uh, on the opposing sides, the width of it, um, it has details, architectural details, that are very reminiscent of a penis. Okay. Um, and it's amazing to me, and was as they were building it, and remains to this day that people do not uh, that people do not laugh and cringe and point at this penis and call it the penis building. <laughs> um, it's called the Seattle Municipal Tower. You can Google it. Uh, in the pictures that you see, it may or may not be obvious that the glass is green because that was the fashion at the time. Right. I remember the green glass. Um, but what happened was the developer of the Seattle municipal tower, which was not always called that it was developed, um, as an office building. And then the, there was an economic crash and the developer went bankrupt and the city of Seattle bought the building, uh, for, and this was an actually a great real estate deal. The city of Seattle bought this building on the cheap and turned it into effectively city. Um, it's not city hall because we built a separate building for city hall, but this, this building contains all of the city departments. If you're, if you work for the land use department or if you work for, um, the sewers or whatever. I mean, you, you will be, um, you'll, your offices will be in the Seattle municipal tower. It's like 60 stories tall. It has the dumbest, dumbest, dumbest lobby you've ever seen. It was originally like called what's the way what's dumb about the lobby. Well, in the fashion of the time, see, there was, there, there were a couple of problems. One, it's built in a very steep neighborhood. So, from one block to the next, you're walking up a hill that's basically like two stories tall. So you can't just have a big open lobby. You have to, it has to reflect that you're climbing the hill. And the second problem was it's built over the entrance to the express lanes of the freeway. So on one corner of the building, one, one of the, only the two corners that are on the bottom side of the building, one of them is is a freeway entrance. It's a tunnel, basically. It goes into the side of the building. So what they did was they built a lobby that is like on four levels. Four levels that are not, that don't relate to one another or interact with one another. And they're only accessible via escalator so if you come in, for instance, on the um, 
on the Jefferson side, Jefferson Street, you'll walk up some stairs, go in the door, down a couple of stairs, down an escalator to a landing, then down a second escalator to another landing. You'll walk around across a sort of lobby area mm-hmm. and then take another escalator down to the to the lobby below. And that's the lobby that has the Starbucks on it. And then there's a further level down below that, which is a lobby of another sort, a lobby that allows you to move around different portions of the building, maybe to the parking garages. But then it has that elevator cluster where this bank of elevators only goes to these floors and this bank of elevators only goes to those floors. And if you want to go to the top, you have to get on this elevator. It'll take you to the 40th floor and get off. You go around the corner to another bank of elevators that'll take you to the, to floors up above. Like everything about it just says to me, nineties, nineties, like this. (laughs) But but I mean, it's being built at that time. So what are they supposed to do? Like, how can you look forward to what design trends will be if you're building it in the present day? You just do, you got to do your best. No, that's the challenge of being a good architect rather than a hack architect. And there are so many hack architects that are like, oh, well, the fashion right now is to make everything mauve. So we're going to make our thing mauve. It's like, do you have no, did you not go to any creativity classes? Did, do you not recognize that building things is an art as well as a, just a, like, like Legos? Like you want to make it look good. It's like, look around you. When you were in college, they surely showed you slides of good buildings. Surely one of your professors was like, there are good buildings and bad buildings. Did you just ignore those? I mean, once you get into, uh, once you get into the cost, right, where you're trying to build it for somebody and they are saying, well, I want to keep costs down. And at first you say, I'd love to put gargoyles all around it that are hand carved in Italy. And the person that's paying you is like, well, I don't think we can afford gargoyles. So you come back to them and you're like, well, let's let, how about just downspouts that like look like dragons? Well, I don't think we can afford downspouts. Well, you need downspouts. It's like, that's part of the code. Okay. Well, you can build downspouts, but make them, cheap like you're always fighting against the person you're designing it for but be clever (laughs) be clever like the fucking donkey dick building is such an insult to cleverness because it's i mean it's very clever if what you were trying to do is build an actual penis 60 stories (laughs) like in that sense fucking genius because you succeeded and this then the city accepts it the people of seattle never they don't argue with it at all. Um, that seems to maybe bother you more. It does. I, as it was going up, I was like, does that look like a penis to you? <laughs> what do you mean? It just looks like a building. Well, well people, people don't want to see something like that unless they, they want to don't. see something like that. They don't. It's a huge boner right in the center. <laughs> anyway, so Seattle <laughs> is about to. Right at this moment, it's about to warm it up. And start building a, a, a spate of really tall buildings. And 
It's very exciting to me. There's a building that is planned that's going to be taller than the Columbia Tower. It's going to be like big. Uh, there's a building that's just now being completed. That's an example of there. There's a, a an old church downtown called the First Methodist Church that is a beautiful old building. The First Methodist congregation is famous in Seattle for being <clears throat> an activist Methodist congregation. First Methodist is like has a long and storied history here as a group of people in, in addition to a building. But the building isn't or wasn't earthquake-proofed and nobody goes to church anymore. I mean, the congregation of First Methodist had been dramatically reduced. Just kind of a bunch of old people and a few well-meaning young Methodists. But they still were very committed to their social uh, program. You know, they're very devoted to helping the homeless, to being a part of the community. And they owned this gorgeous building downtown that was half a city block. And that backed up against the Rainier Club, which is the private club of the old guard, the, the, the true Seattle social um, like elite, the Rainier Club. You, you know, there's a waiting list to even be considered for membership. You have to be recommended by five people. Inside, I'm sure they have the skull of Chief Seattle. Like, it's a real, like, old school place. I heard from a friend that is a promoter that one of the members of the Rainier Club hired Beyonce <laughs> to play his daughter's 14th birthday. At the Rainier Club, they, like, built a little stage. They brought in her light show. She flew in with all of her dancers, her her whole wow. stadium show, and did a hour-long show for this girl's birthday party and then flew out. Nobody in the city even knew she was there. Got paid a million dollars. Like that's who's at the Rainier club. So first Methodist owned the other half of that block and the congregation said, we want to, we want to sell this property to a developer because we no longer can use this building and we, and our mission is to provide help to the homeless. And this building is our asset and we want to sell it and tear it down uh, because we're committed to our, our social activism and we need this money. The building had been landmarked, but landmarking in Seattle is kind of like, this building's a landmark. And then somebody comes in with a bulldozer and tears it down. And you're like, but it was a landmark. And you realize like that has no binding authority on anything. <laughs> right. It, it means something to people who, who like it and who care yeah. about those things, but it's not like a uh, certified historic building or something that they can't well, touch. Right. It even is. It's oh. just like, it's just that here. I mean, I think that if a building is landmark, do you have to what, maybe fill out one extra form? I'm not even sure, but it doesn't inhibit developers that much but people love the first methodist building and it was the first methodist church and it was kind of the last remaining thing 
down there in a sea of skyscrapers. It's right across the street from the donkey dick building. <laughs> it's like, it's this beautiful church. And the, the Christian science church up the street had been converted into what we call town hall now, which is the place that Garrison Keillor comes to give a speech. It's a very public radio style. John Hodgman gives shows there. Um, you know, it's like if, if, if writers come, they do an interview on stage with Maria Semple will interview, uh, you know, Michael Shabon there. And it'll be a very, you know, a very like erudite audience that claps politely and laughs at all the, at, at all the smart jokes. But town hall has become like a great, it's a great civic institution here. And so first Methodist, there was again, like a groundswell movement. We've got to save first Methodist. Can't we turn it into a meeting hall or some kind of performance space? Well, it needed all this expensive earthquake proofing, but, but it got up against the question of who owns this property and, and like, do, is there like, if we're talking about a performance space in the heart of the business district, who's going to go to that and who's going to program it and like, do, does the city need it? Well, it went back and forth. A judge said that first method, that the congregation of first Methodist had the right to sell the building. But then there was a group save the first Methodist church that was trying to raise the money to buy the building from them. Oh, it went it so much drama. 10 years of drama. Eventually, they came up with what should be a thing that happens more often, which was a skyscraper builder tore down the old parking lot and a 1960s addition that had been built on to the First Methodist Church and built a skyscraper that is narrower at the bottom and then kind of goes up like a shard of glass so that by the time it's over the top of the church, it's now like bigger than like it, it overlaps the church up high and they, and a clever architect made this building that looks basically like the kind of crystal that you would buy at a dark magic shop in a downtown area that has crystal balls and pictures of wizards on the walls, like a crystal that you would hold around your neck, like a, some obsidian. This is what this building looks like. And whether or not it's going to date well, I have no idea. Right. It's, it's a, it's an unusual building. And I think the best thing about it is that sometimes when you're on the street, you look up and the way the face of the building is angled, it just looks like the ocean. The building is reflecting the ocean. Or the sky, the building reflects the sky in a way that it almost blends, like becomes invisible. I, I'm my jury is out on it, but I think I'm pro this building. But they kept the First Methodist Church and are now integrating it into the building, like it's kind of the lobby, and the performance space is going to be guess what? It's going to be their Sheraton meeting. <laughs> That's your least favorite thing. No, it's great. They're going to have the mayor is going to come in. They're going to talk <laughs> about the money they raised to buy violins for people in <laughs> right. Uzbekistan. 
So we're about to see really tall buildings go up in Seattle. And, you know, my, my final argument for them is that that's what Seattle's founders wanted. Seattle's founders and all of the people that built the, laid the groundwork for this city and have designed it from the beginning. They want it to, they want Tokyo to look across the Pacific and go, Oh, Seattle, she's really, she's really a comer. Look, she's got some tall buildings now. <laughs> That's what Seattle always wanted. Yeah. From the, from the very dawn back when to- uh, Tokyo was made out of rice paper, Seattle was still already <laughs> thinking that. Way. Right. Right. And now Shanghai <laughs> and all these cities in China, they all have huge skyscrapers. They're all big economic powerhouses and Seattle just feels so neglected and so like neutered because internally we're, we're so, uh, we're so conflicted about ourselves. What are we supposed to be? And I think we, I think Seattle can be all these things. I think it can be, I think it can have a vibrant alternative theater space. I think it can house all of its citizens affordably. And I think it can be like a bustling, energetic, broad shouldered economic Pacific Rim centerpiece. And I think that like tall skyscrapers are the key ingredient in accomplishing all of that. And in that, I'm somewhat at odds with my, with people that share my political philosophies, but this is like the 2020s are going to be the era of Seattle skyscrapers. And I'm going to be like, I'm going to be right in the lobbies of those things wearing my King Neptune pin and passing that envelope around like cult, just passing the hat. <laughs> 